Okay, here we go. Episode 88 of the podcast. Um, really special episode here. And I actually did this with a co-host who I've got with me. First co-host on the podcast. I've got Zach Delvecchio here. Big time honor. Zach and I have been friends for over a decade. A lifelong Billy Gibbons fan as well as myself and an, an absolute guitar guy. So I had to bring him into this podcast. And um, th- I mean, this has been a little bit of like a joke between us. Of who was gonna meet Billy first? Who was gonna, you know, see him at dinner or something? Well, we have, we have so many mutual friends that all know him, but for some reason, no matter what it was, whether it was oh we got to the party too late, we weren't at the event, wherever it was, for some reason, it was like this elusive white whale of always missing Billy. We've always missed him, but I feel like it was kind of coming down to this moment. You know, my first concert was Easy Top. It's like, look, I don't want to make such a big deal out of this, but I feel like it's kind of a big deal. We got Billy Gibbons on the podcast. An absolute legend. Could not have been cooler. One of the most outrageously incredible, nice, kind, and genuine human beings I've ever had the pleasure of speaking This to. was such a great episode. To hear Billy, to hear him tell these stories, to hear him from the horse's mouth about playing with Mick Jagger or Jimi Hendrix or you know the early days of ZZ Top. So cool. I, can we say anything else? I think we just have to get into it. Let's what, roll the tape. Roll the tape. Here we go. The Zach Kuhn Show. What's the song that everyone plays wrong? Is there is there a song here that everyone that you always hear people play and they always get the riff wrong? Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, including us. Thank you. Oh yeah. What's there's two two things that are can can be a bit irritating. Number one is when you hear a cover band doing one of your songs better than you can do it. <laughs> I, really, I don't believe that. Does that happen? It's gone. Yo, yeah, we've we've seen it. And then, uh, of course, uh, you you hit the stage and you play a couple songs, and right, it inevitably out of the front row, somebody says, "Play some Skinner." Oh, no. <laughs> Free bird. Yeah. <laughs> so I saw you, Billy. You were my first concert, ZZ Top at Jones Beach in the rain, and there was lightning behind you, and I thought it was one of the coolest things I'd ever seen. It was quite the show. I, I With, recall it. It was you were on tour, co-headlining with Aerosmith. Correct. It was an incredible night. And the thing that I just remember being, I was like 10 years old, and to see you guys dancing with the guitars, the iconic ZZ Top move, just, <laughs> yeah. I think that was the moment I said, I have to go into the music business. I have to work in rock and roll. Where did the moves come from? Was that something that you guys had worked out, or did they kind of just happen on stage? When did the synchronized moves come to the table? We were back in California, and... uh this was uh, 83, just when Eliminator was f- fixing to hit. And uh, we went over to the Sony Studios in Culver City, and uh, a young lady happened to be walking down the hall, and she goes, oh, ZZ Top, I love you guys. It was Paula Abdul. Oh, my God. Who was a choreographer. She started out as a dance instructor. Right. And uh, she came in and said, I need to get you guys some moves. And we said, come on, bring it on. And that's really how it started. And ironically, the coincidence was later that afternoon, we took a break, walking down the hall, and uh, I bumped into, uh, there, there was a, a producer working down the second studio. And he said, man, he said, uh, do you know any girl singers? I've got, a, I've got a track and I need a girl singer. And I was standing next to Paula. And I said, well, uh, Paula, why don't you step up? She goes, well, I've not done this before. And I said, well, now's, now's the chance. And 
boom, she broke up. I mean, bigger than Dallas. It was crazy. That's how it started. Was there something kind of risky or dangerous about the little band from Texas putting these moves in? Did pe- were, were people weird out about it? Like, how would you have the confidence to put those in? It's so rock and roll now, but did it seem rock and roll then? Well, yeah, and I got to hand it to, to uh, our dearly departed bass player, Dusty Hill, dreamed up. Uh, we were working on a production, and he said, uh, Let, let's put some... Uh, let's put some belts on stage. Um, I said, what kind of belts do you mean? He said, something we can walk on, something that, I said, like a moving sidewalk maybe? He said, yeah, that's it, that's it. And uh, it was actually uh, quite fun uh, until one night uh, we had a new operator and he didn't know the forward and reverse (laughs) shift knob and (laughs) we went flying. (laughs) That's fun. On that same note, how did it feel spinning a guitar for the first time? Because you see people throw their guitars in the air on the straps and praying that their strap locks aren't going to fly off. But it was the first time you're like, okay, let's hope this belt is not going to destroy this instrument. How the, What was that like? Well, uh, Don Summers, prior to ZZ Top forming, I was in a group called The Moving Sidewalks. And uh, we had such a blast out there um, right right soon after we uh, had gotten together as a group we went in the studio and cut a record 99th floor which started making some chart action and and following that we got hired to join the Jimi Hendrix experience this was back in 1968 and he had just come over from England but uh, Don Summers the bass player for the moving sidewalks dreamed up the contraption that allowed he had the probably the first spinning guitar that I that I can recall, and uh, later, uh, fast forward to again, 1983 is the release year for the Eliminator record, and we said uh, I called Don up and I said, "Hey man," I said, uh, "Can you whip up some spinning guitar for us?" He, oh yeah, sure man. <laughs> what he didn't tell us he. He was slow to remind us, hey, when you spin, you got to lean way back. And yeah. sure enough, it'll it'll whap you in the side, upside the head. Oh, my God. Yeah. Wait, so when you were on tour with the Jimi Hendrix Experience, I think there's a story. I want to know if this is true. You covered Jimmy's songs in the set, right? You played two of his songs, Purple Haze and Foxy Lady, in the set, yeah. right? Well, we were contracted to do uh, 45 minutes. Yeah, and at that time, we were so new as a band, we only knew 45 minutes worth of material if we included Foxy Lady and Purple Haze. But why those songs? Why his songs? Isn't that isn't that poor etiquette as an opening act? We didn't care, and neither did he. <laughs> uh, he, he I've, about the time we were wrapping up, Foxy Lady was the closer. And uh, I happened to look in the shadows, and I saw this guy with his arms folded. And sure enough, we walked off stage. He grabbed me, and he said, hey, man. I want to meet you. You got a lot of nerve. <laughs> it was Jimi Hendrix. Was that the first time you met him and actually spoke with him? Oh yeah, it was the for opening night. I think we were down in uh, we were down in Texas, and uh, we did. Uh, oh gosh, we we tiptoed through Houston, Texas, Dallas, Texas, San Antonio, Texas. Then we headed out way out west, and we wound up. Uh, I followed him all the way to the west coast, and it was it was quite the scene. Quite the scene. I believe it. 
it was something that's so interesting nowadays, you know, people post online and do these things and, you know, they get global traction, but I always thought it was so amazing about yourself and ZZ Top that you'd have guys like Keith Richards. Everybody knew to come down to Texas to see you guys. How how did that come about? What what did you feel was that what was generating that buzz that made everybody say, Man, these are the guys. I don't care where we are. We've never even been to the United States, but we know we gotta go to Texas of all places to see these guys. Yeah. Uh to this day, and we've all got uh acquaintances, we got friends, followers, fans, whatever you want to call them. Uh we've at some point or another, we've all crossed with these Texas gunslingers. You know, the guitar thing is a mystery. Why Texas? We don't know. We just feel it. And uh, as you point out, well, um, it's funny you should mention Keith Richards. Uh, uh, moving sidewalks, uh, we, we remained together until uh, 1969. And uh, two of the sidewalks uh, got drafted into the military service, and um, I wanted to continue on. So one thing after another, we finally, uh, I bumped into Frank Beard. He was playing the sides off the drum kit. And then in turn, he introduced me to, to Dusty, and uh, we got together. The first night we got together, uh, I said, well, let's play a simple shuffle and see. It lasted for three hours. And at that moment, I said, yeah, maybe we got something. Maybe, <laughs> maybe. But shortly thereafter, we wound up going to Hawaii and playing with the Rolling Stones. That's where we met. Uh, because Mick Jagger, because what well, I think what we're trying to understand is, I think it was your manager who said, we're not going to do any press, right? We're not going to go on any of the shows. We're not going to do any press. And yet everybody knew about you guys, right? Including Mick Jagger found out about you guys. Like, how does that happen? There's no social media. There's no internet at the time. How did everybody know about you guys? Word was spreading fast. Uh, well, whatever it was we were doing was hitting the streets. And, uh, of course, word of mouth back then was it, as you point out. Way, you know, no internet. No nope. cell phones. Are you kidding? <laughs> it's just, but word of mouth was, was the deal. Yeah. Okay, okay, so McJagger sees you and, and he brings you guys to to Hawaii, right? Yes. Uh, the promoter of that show was out of Denver, Barry Fay, and uh, it was really interesting. I think every band on the planet was vying to get on that show. Three shows in Hawaii. We had a Friday night, a Saturday matinee, and a Saturday night. And of course, you know, they said, "No, with ZZ Top, we're going to." put ZZ Top and the Rolling Stones together. And, of course, we were so new, and Hawaii was so remote. Uh, we were still dressed up in cowboy hats and cowboy boots, and we came out on stage. The lights came up, and <laughs> I said, I heard it from the front row. They said, oh, my God, they're a country band. <laughs> That's what I said, no, no, no. It's like, wait, we're more, we swear. <laughs> yeah, fun stuff, man. But isn't that the, you know, choosing to wear the hats, and were you chasing a different image as because you would have you would have had to assume that everyone would have thought ZZ Top would have been a country band. Were you guys okay having that juxtaposition, or why why the cowboy hats and why show that image? Yeah, it was uh, something we were raised with. One thing that I found out early on between Frank Beard, Dusty Hill, and myself, uh, we had all listened to the Mexican Border Blaster radio uh, late at night and. We all had such, I mean, we had been listening to 
blues and rhythm and blues as far as I can remember. I mean, as a youngster, that was the deal. And uh, to to gel with two other guys that had such a common background, you know, what we grew up listening to, it really put uh, it put us in the fast lane and uh, we just picked up sticks and kept laying them down, man. It was it was a lot of and a lot of me, lot of stuff there. Stop me if I'm wrong, but at the time too, the rhythm and blues wasn't you know mainstream radio at all, at all either too. So it was kind of like when you found a person that also felt the same way, it was like, oh, I'm not alone. <laughs> yeah, it was uh, on its way out. It was evaporating, and uh, which brings up uh, kind of another interesting point of how the guys and gals in Britain rescued this vanishing art form, tr truly American art form. Uh, you know, and uh, some people, oh, yeah, blues, it's so simple, three chords. But when you start digging into it, the sophistication runs so deep, so quick, it really gets, uh, really gets the, you know, it gets your pulse beating for sure. But uh, make no mistake, the, the Brits really embraced it and, uh, brought it back around in such a big way. Now it's part of the fabric. It just is. Who who was the first that of all the Brits that made you say, Oh man, okay, there's the sound is changing. Was it John Mayle? Was it, you know, who who of that elk was the one that made you Jeff Beck. The man. Jeff Beck, yeah man. He had put the Jeff Beck group together. In fact the moving sidewalks uh shared a uh, bill with the Jeff Beck group. Really? And uh, again, this was about the same time Hendrix was. Hendrix came just a little bit later, but Jeff Beck, uh, of course, Rod Stewart was singing, Mickey Waller on drums, Nicky Hopkins on piano, and Ronnie Wood on bass. <laughs> Ronnie Wood on bass. Oh man, it was quite the lineup. That wow. was, uh, yeah, the first uh, the Jeff Beck group record. Um, the, those first two records are really stunning, and. Uh, uh, you know, Jeff laughs about it today. We're still pals. I spoke to him last week. Uh, he's kind of bummed out. He's stuck over in England. And I think things are opening up as we speak. Mm -hmm. But la even as uh, close as last week, he was, oh, man, I'm trying to get back on the road, but we're stuck. But uh, Beck was the guy that did it for me. And he was playing uh, Gibson Les Paul at the time. Uh, Ronnie Wood was playing a reissue Fender uh, Precision Basic. It uh, it was a copy of the '52 Precision Bass, and it was uh, re-released in early '68 with the name Telecaster Bass. But the combination of those two instruments became the backbone of ZZ Top, and that was the inspiration for it as well. Is that what kind of made you on this hunt for? I need a Pearly Gates. I need a Les Paul. Was I need to get my oh, ox blood. <laughs> yeah, man, and uh, they were they were hard to find. Uh, uh, the records today, there's there's a suspicion that Gibson produced about thirteen hundred and eighty of the Sunburst Les Paul, you know, the Holy Grail. But uh, yeah, we we soon found one, and uh, we stumbled through a pawn shop in Dallas, and there was a Telecaster bass. $60 with the case. <laughs> Got, gotta have the with case. With the case included. Yeah, man. Gotta have the case. But that's, in fact, uh, Jeff Beck was responsible for getting the first Marshall 100-watt stacks into the into the states. 
he got, uh, we bought two stacks, Marshall 100 watt stacks for 700 bucks. That's insane. It was insane. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. He knew Jim Marshall, you know, he was good friends. He said, oh, I got some friends over. Was that, it's funny because now the Marshall is so just associated with rock and roll because of people like yourself who bought them and played them. So we see pictures of you with Marshalls behind you and so iconic. But at the time, was that the obvious choice of amp to get? Or was it just because Jeff Beck was pulling them in? It could have been any amp. Like, why was it the Marshall? It was the high gain and the sound. But was it the obvious amp at the time to get for what you were doing? Yeah. There was something about the sound that was so riveting. Uh, there was It was inescapable. That beautiful, distorted, tube-like effect. And uh, Jim Marshall, I got to know him much later. But he kind of shrugged it uh, with a laugh. He kind of shrugged it off saying, well, he said, I basically copied the Fender Baseman. And Leo Fender copied the, he designed the Fender Baseman from the RCA catalog yeah. of 1936. The back panel. Yeah. Exactly. Was, and then he just said, here's a JTM 45. It's just a loud basman. Just it crank it up and had no idea or was even expecting to you know, have tube saturation. Yeah, but the British, uh, you know, the, the British components played a big part in distinguishing that sound that made it so iconic, so recognizable. Those Mullard caps, they make a, they make a difference. Man, uh, yeah. On, on that same note on guitars, you know, you obviously you play such an iconic vintage instrument, but you're also really known for playing kind of interesting guitars, you know, whether it's a custom shop, it's a Gibson that's modified, you know, and, or even to the point where, you know, some people even say it's almost like sacrilege when you can go from a burst to here's a guitar that has a hollowed out neck. But uh, what's your what's your philosophy on like a good on a good guitar? Is it just it needs to resonate or just needs to speak to you? Or what is what do you look for in a guitar when you've had them all? Well, uh, I recount the words of our good buddy in Dallas, Texas, the, the late Charlie Wirtz, who founded Charlie's Guitar Shop and later started the first international guitar show based in Dallas and. He said, man, he said, I don't understand it. He said, it's just a war club. He said, <laughs> he said meat on metal on wood. <laughs> I said, yeah, that's about right. <laughs> but uh, we've got some crazy, we've just recently, uh, uh, we took delivery. Our, there's a guitar builder out of Boise, Idaho, been at it since, I guess, he, oh gosh, he goes back early 80s. John Bolin. Of course. You've Bolin. been working with him for years. Bolin Guitars, yeah. And uh, there's nothing that he's not afraid to do. You can throw anything you want, the most kind of irrational, unreasonable suggestion, and he'll embrace it. Oh, yeah, let's try it. <laughs> he did that arch top once that had the individual pieces of the red and white maple in a like a circle spiral. That is, I still think, one of the most amazingly designed-looking instruments. Yes, and uh, he did the... Uh, he made... Uh, I said, Bolin, I said, I need a... Uh, said, can you make me a Fender Esquire? He said, he said, well, I can make an Esquire, something, something like it. He said... Uh, I said, why don't you call up Fender? They'll send you one. I said, no. I said, you could do something a little bit different. And uh, here it is. Sure enough, he's uh, yeah. He honeycombed the body. That's awesome. To and it is so comfortable. It's with with the removal, every unnecessary scrap of sawdust has been eliminated. This thing weighs. 
It's like a Martin acoustic guitar, <laughs> fully loaded. It's and I bet it resonates really well too. Like, yeah, man, it's, it'll float out of your hand. It's so light. <laughs> it's crazy. What's the What's the weirdest guitar you've ever designed? Was there something that was just so weird that it just didn't work out, or did you always stick the landing? The there there was a guy in Germany, uh, who he released a guitar called the Teufel Birdfish. Yes, with the tone bars. With the tone bars. Mm-hmm. Very fascinating instrument. Yeah. Strange to look at, but easy to play. And they, the sound, those interchangeable tone bars really did a, a number with it. You know, Teufel. Yeah, it's, he's talking about it's like him and Ritter were like two out in uh, Europe that were totally saying, we don't care what a guitar used to look like. We're going to design it like a modern sports car and modern art at the same time there was uh a guy sent me a a picture just this morning uh there a a british uh design team brian eastwood and his son michael eastwood and uh they came up with oh cool they came up with a real interesting design oh wow kind of it's like a little bit of a Bo Diddley looking thing. It's a Bo Diddley Washburn. Yeah, the wow. Billy the Billy Bo meets the UK madness. They call it the Billy Bird. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. So what's the process? And correct me if I'm wrong, I've heard that maybe like every two years or so you guys will go through and do new guitars and you'll make sure everything matches where it's supposed to, bass and guitar. What what's the process for that? How do you do people send you stuff? Do you go out and sort of pick colors and designs and put everything together? How how's that happen? Yeah, well, once we found a home with Boland Guitars out of Idaho, Boise, Idaho, uh, knowing that John understood the value of preserving what he called the ZZ Top sounding guitar. What is that? Can you describe that? What is the? Well, it's modeled after the. 59 Les Paul, which we've had... Pearly Gates. Pearly Gates. The, the guitar. Yes. And uh, now we call it the the uh, Backstage Science Project. Um, <laughs> when do you play Pearly Gates? Do you play it on the road? Because you, you Do you bring it out with you? Occasionally. Occasionally? Yeah. Uh, it got to be so valuable. And, uh, and uh, we nearly lost... We... Two guys came backstage and and were stopped at the backstage door. Fortunately, uh, as with Pearly in hand. <laughs> oh man! But uh, we came close. But ever since then, um, we decided to study Pearly and put it under the microscope. We uh, we uh, evaluated the the EQ performance. Um, we pretty much figured out what was going on under the hood which um and someone said what 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 possibly made pearly such an outstanding instrument luck it was simple just a stroke of luck the right combination of wood the right amount of glue the right amount of lack of humidity when in the spray booth all those you know uh you take a production line and why is it that that the let's call it the Les Paul production line? At the end of the day, you've got ten or twelve guitars looking pretty much the same, but sounding way way different. It's because the no no two trees grow alike. The cellular structure is just 
you know, right, of course, yeah, wide as the range can get. So there you have it. It's it's uh, it's the nightmare for guitar makers that uh, get lucky one day on Monday and by Friday they're still searching <laughs> to no, get yeah. it the same. Well, especially for 59s where they have such a you know reverence, but you know, and you've played infinitely more than I have, but I played dozens of them and some of them are dogs. Some of them are just really okay. And then you find those ones like uh, Gary Rosington's burst I played not too long ago. Amazing. Not even because it was his or anything like that. It was just a great Les Paul. And but when you find those ones, all you do is you hit that A chord or G chord and you're like, yep, I don't need to know anything else. I just know this guitar works. Yeah. There is a uh, interesting work. It's a book uh, entitled uh, "The Guitars from Japan," and I think really the zenith of Japanese guitar making start. It reached its first peak in the '60s. You had Tysco, uh, Goya, Greco, um, so many names. There was hun literally hundreds of electric guitars coming out of Japan. And, you know, just when you think that you could you could wipe the slate clean and say, oh, no, those, those things were not not even playable. Wrong. <laughs> they're, now they're, yeah. you know, the $160 solid body is now $1,060. Well, you try to find those old Bernies or the Ibanez lawsuits, and they're as much as a standard Gibson is. Yeah, man, they're, it's pretty wild. And the fact is, Hartley Peavy, I was speaking with Hartley Peavy down in Mississippi. And uh, he said, come on out to the back. And I said, yeah. And sure enough, there were two semis leaving the property at the end of the day. <laughs> he said, I make this stuff, and it leaves the building every day. <laughs> Where is it going? <laughs> <laughs> and it's okay. never, never ending. It's been, you know, like, uh, what are we looking at? 50 plus years of, but as the old saying goes, one's too many and a hundred ain't enough. <laughs> Especially when it comes to guitars. Oh yeah. <laughs> Wait, so I cut you off. So we were saying, so when you're pairing guitars for tours, so you'll go and, uh, and your guitar maker kind of knows what the, what the ZZ top guitar is. And is he the one who's doing the color palettes and mixing and matching or how involved are you in deciding what everything is going to look like on stage guitar wise? Oh, uh, Mr. Bolin allows me into the design studio at the drop of a hat. He actually prefers the challenge when something odd and unexpected lands in his lap. Uh, but he's a great guy to work with, and uh, we'll sit at the we'll sit at the, uh, at the we'll we'll sit behind the drawing board. Um, on, on a good day, we'll knock something out in ten minutes. On the, the other day, we might work. We might, hey, you're going to have to fly to Las Vegas to finish this out. Okay, fine. I'll be there. So it's, yeah, it's always something. Uh, it, it's a great working relationship, you know. Uh, the creative process is endless. And to find somebody that's always willing to pick up the sticks and uh, lay them down for you, it's pretty cool. What's, uh, what is, what, which ones do you have coming down the pipeline that you can talk about right now? He, we just sent off, uh, now last week I was in, uh, or two weeks ago I was in Las Vegas and we were wrapping up the, uh, ZZ Top residency at the Venetian. Beautiful room. Yeah. It's a great, great spot. And, um, late, not starting until midnight, we were off the deck at 1030 down the street 
at uh, uh, Danny Coker's joint, Counts Customs. Oh, yeah. He's got uh, a, a neat little nightclub, The Vamp. Huh, I didn't know that. And Gilby Clark, the uh, he was with Guns N' Roses for the longest time. Now he's got a, a great, wicked trio, Gilby Clark trio. They were playing at The Vamp. So we got off stage and hauled across town, and uh, Gilby uh, is famous. He's noted for favoring the Zamatis guitar, the work of Tony Zamatis from the UK. Um, he passed away. Tony Zamatis passed away in 2002, but uh, his youngster decided to keep the flame alit and licensed the manufacturing to a high-end Japanese outfit, and they actually got better. Yeah, you could spend up to fifteen, twenty thousand uh, for one of Tony's originals. Um, the current production still in place is is very reasonable. In fact, uh, here in Nashville, I went across town uh, to see Walter Carter, Carter's mm -hmm. Vintage. And uh, he had not one, but two. Oh man! Interesting Zamatis. And you know what? Those are reasonable. They're like nine hundred bucks. Yes, right. They're really reasonable. Quite affordable, and yet uh, I couldn't. I couldn't keep my hands off of it. <laughs> I've got. I sent it to Bolin. I said we're going to remove the toggle switch, take two knobs out. We're going to add binding. So you got it. You bought the guitar. Bought both of them. You bought both. <laughs> of them. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> That's uh, so though I saw those online actually and I was eyeing those and I said those things are badass. Yeah. And Billy Gibbons beat me to it. I oh, could have had it. <laughs> I'm glad you have them because you know, one of the best parts about watching you is seeing what guitar you're playing. That's just as fun as watching you is seeing what you've got around your neck. Um, Billy, before we run out of time, we have to talk about the new album Hardware, which just came out, which I think is a great record. And I think the guitars on, I think if it's even possible, there's more guitars on this than like it's easy top record being the Billy Gibbons solo record. Does that allow you to put more guitars on it? Can you, can you spread out a little bit and, and be even more guitar heavy? If that's even a thing, what, what was this like? Yeah, definitely. And it was, uh, it was an angle that was bolstered by, um, one of Nashville's great recording engineers, uh, Mike Fiorentino. Uh, I love his last name, Fiorentino. <laughs> Tiny Flowers. <laughs> <Good one. laughs> yeah, Mike Fiorentino. And uh, I got a phone call from another Guns N' Roses uh, stalwart, Matt Sorum, on drums. He said, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm sitting here in Las Vegas. Like everybody else, we've kind of been stuck, you know. He said, well, I found a recording studio in Joshua Tree. I said, no kidding. I said, uh, I said I've worked out there with uh, Queens of the Stone Age. Josh had me come out. He said, no, it's another studio. I said, there, you mean there's two yeah. in Joshua Tree? It's the not that desert. big. <laughs> yeah, the whole desert. Yeah. Uh, but sure enough, uh, it was right across the highway. And uh, Austin Hanks, our our trusted left-handed guitar player, I can't even look at Austin playing. <laughs> Freaks me Upside out. down and backwards. <laughs> I mean, it's, and with a weird tuning on top of it with a capo. I no, mean, it's I just it's bizarre. But uh, that brought about, uh, we actually went out there uh, to inspect the studio. And, of course, we made no provisions for an equipment truck to follow us. We were just thinking, okay, 30 minutes, you walk through a studio, four walls, no windows, great. 
But uh, as luck would have it, the engineers insisted that that Matt pick up some drums and Austin got a guitar. They had two Fender. They had a Fender Jazzmaster, a Fender Jaguar from 1966, uh, going through a Fender reverb tank into a tweed uh, a Fender basement. Hmm. And it was all hardwired. You could not, you couldn't unplug anything. Everything was, wow. the guitars were hardwired into the reverb, which was hardwired into the amp. Fascinating. And uh, I said, well, you know, let's make some noise. And the sound of the surf guitar was back. <laughs> and uh, listen closely to, well, the opening number, the first track that was cut uh, was a thing we wrote called West Coast Junkie. I'm a West Coast, I'm a West Coast junkie from a lonesome Texas town. But there it was. The surf guitar was back. <laughs> what a cool sound. It was crazy. Spring reverb but, tanks like that. Yeah, man. And uh, that was that was the uh, impetus that led the release of hardware to be such a guitar-driven record. We loved it. It really is. I think it, everybody's got to go listen to this record because I I was putting it on and it's just as it's like a ZZ Top record with more guitar, and you get to take your solos are kind of and you're really getting to changes in a couple of places also. In a couple of moments, you're really hit. I think it's a great record. Everybody's got to listen to it. Um, hardware. And um, uh, your new tequila line, Trace Ombres, which oh, now the tequila is Pura Vida. The tequila is Pura Vida. And now we've introduced uh, a ZZ Top whiskey. Trace it's Ombres. a whiskey. Excuse me. It's a whiskey. Yeah. Called which is three types of of what's in it. There's three different ingredients in it, right? What, yeah. What uh, is this? Well, for your listeners and viewers, uh, I would encourage somebody to uh, get industrious and go online. And look up Balcones Whiskey. That's the parent company, the distillery, that uh, volunteered to try and experiment with uh, some new blends. You know, it uh, it really comes it comes down to does it taste good? Does it feel good? It is good. But Balcones, it's B A L C O N E S named after the famous fault line that runs through the state of Texas, Balcones Fault. <laughs> yeah. Okay, everybody's got... Are, are, you, a, are you a big uh, a whiskey snob, I guess? That might not be the right word, but are you, are you particular about your whiskeys? I may become that. You with, may become that with your own... Now that you have your own line, yeah. you might have to become very with, particular with your whiskey. With the release of... Uh, Trace Ombres from Balcones Distillery. I just want to try just the name alone. I got to give this thing a try. Show sure enough. I just love whiskey, so yeah, I don't have on. to be provoked. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Okay. We, look, in our final moments together, Zach, what you got? What you got? What's been unsaid? I have a request for you. As of things that I think you need to consider as you're branching things out, there's been two people in my entire life that have inspired fashion. Jimmy Page in his dragon suit and you with the nudie suits. Ooh. And I think it's time... To introduce a fashion line of your jackets. The world needs them. Could it happen? Billy? I need them. <laughs> Could there be a Billy Gibbons fashion line? Why not? Right. Um, you know, we got uh, we got saddled up with Nudie back in the the start of ZZ Top. We were looking for something. And uh, my buddy Chris Hillman was playing in the Birds and then the Flying Burrito Brothers. And, and uh, the whole West Coast Cowboy movement was taking off. Sweetheart of the Rodeo and Flying Burrito Brothers. Um, and uh, it was actually my dad who, uh, my dad was the orchestra leader 
uh, he, he did so much, but uh, the the founders of the Corral Club, which was the big part of the Houston Fat Stock Show and Rodeo, which is still one of the biggest in the country, and uh, they they had the they, they uh, Howard Lee, who was married to Gene Tierney, uh, he came to my dad and he said, Freddie he said. Uh, he said, we need the Gibbons touch. He said, uh, we all show up in business suits, and it's just not right for the rodeo. What do you got? <laughs> he said, well, there's a guy out there in North Hollywood. I know him quite well. His name is Nudie, Nudie Kahn. So Nudie flew to Houston, and uh, Glenn McCarthy, who owned the Shamrock Hotel, which is uh, the movie Giant, was was probably based around the life of Glenn McCarthy. This guy was way out there. <laughs> uh James Dean, of course, played Jet Rink, who was not so loosely based on Glenn McCarthy. It was Glenn <laughs> McCarthy. But Glenn put, he, put Nudie up at the Shamrock Hotel, and uh, in two weeks, I think Nudie took orders for like 300 suits. Oh, my God. <laughs> you know, smile pockets, uh, arrowheads. Uh, this was just a little bit before the rhinestone introduction. We'll have mm-hmm. to talk about that at a later date. Yes. What's the what's the rhinestone? Was that when you guys started? How did that come together? Uh, well, Nudie was married to one of two twin girls. They had a daughter, and she fell in love with a guy from Mexico. And Nudie was a little skittish. He said, "I," he said, "I don't know. Uh, I, I don't. I don't know anything about Mexico." He said, "I don't know if this is going to work." Until he found out that this guy from Mexico came from a long line of tailors in Mexico. He said, okay. Keeping it in the family. Yeah, it's part of the family. But it was Manuel, Manuel Cuevas, who introduced rhinestones in addition. You had Ben the Turk up in Philadelphia. Uh, Nudie, who's actually immigrated from Russia, came to New York. He got his nickname. He was making, uh, he was making costumes for the burlesque dancers in New York. And he came, of course— relocated uh, North Hollywood right there on Lancashire Boulevard, started making all the, uh, all the fashion costume, Roy Rogers, uh, all the cowboy guys had them and the rest is history. Wow. Okay. In our final moments of, together, Billy, I just wanted to ask, you know, some of these songs are so iconic. The solos are so iconic. The riffs are so iconic A song like LaGrange, you know, that you're so well known for. When you're recording the solo to LaGrange, today it feels almost like classical music in the sense that kids are sitting down, they learn it note for note for note. Were you composing these and stressing over that these were going to become, that the licks and the solos were going to be immortalized? Or did you just kind of play them? Were they just kind of improvised in the spot? Yeah, right on the spot. It was improvisation from square one. Um, and that was the 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 genius of what Frank and Dusty provided was this solid rhythm section. And I just had to show up (laughs) and it was there. And with something so solid to work across, it just, it just comes out, just, just comes out. Of course we had Jeff Beck, Jimmy Page, Keith Richards, Eric Clapton, uh, Mick Abrams, Peter Green, Jeremy Spencer, we had so many of those British guys influencing everything we heard. Um, it was uh, it was not too much of a stretch to emulate, and I think that's when the door opened. And improvising to this day is is it, it's the creative outlet. It's the shout. <laughs> it's the I think our producer Mike. You got a question? Sure. You got a question? Here we go. Quick question. Here we go. 
Okay, so I'm going to preface this by saying that I'm not a musician. I'm not in the music industry, really. I'm in the film industry. But uh, growing up, I loved music. I was obsessed with Elvis Presley, and I got the tattoo to prove it. <laughs> um, but one of my most recent like, kind of big achievements that was not career-related was um, I was in Memphis. I went to Graceland, and I got to be interviewed on Elvis radio and, you know, get to play a song, whatever. Um, but it was such a big kind of personal achievement because I grew up listening to Elvis radio and it came, it was this full circle moment. Um, and I'm just wondering, do you have something in your life that is not music related, that is very personal to you that, that a seven year old Billy would be so excited to hear that you finally, you know, achieved in your life. I could, I could relate to so many elements just sprang to mind. Um, starting with Elvis, I got to see Elvis when I was five. Oh man. Live and up close. My mom took me to my, my, me and my little sister got to see Elvis. And then, uh, what really solidified it, uh, two years later, my dad put me in the car. I was I was seven. Uh, he said, hey, we're going to the recording studio. I've got some business to take care of. He said, uh, when we arrived, we walked in. He's, he, he, he put me in a chair, and he said, I want you to sit here. You can be quiet. He said, there's a band going to make a record. It turned out to be B.B. King and his orchestra. Um. <laughs> I got to see. And they, they, recorded, uh, they recorded a song called I'm Tired of Your Jive. And 50 years later, B.B. King was was being celebrated by a group of musicians. They were putting a CD together, a tribute to B.B. King, with him performing with a host of different different uh, entertainers. And I showed up at the studio. I got invited to be on the record. And uh, B.B. said, uh, save He said, uh, we're going to... Do you know the song we're going to do today? I said, yes, sir. Yes, I, I know. Uh, I'm tired of your job. I said, uh, I was there when you recorded it. He goes, no, that was 1957. I said, I was there. He said, you're the little boy sitting in the chair. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That was crazy. Cool that. That's like, and there was there was a guy originally early on in the ZZ Top days, there was a, there was a gig you guys played where one guy was in the audience and you bought and you you made him stay and you bought him drinks and he'll still come around to ZZ Top shows every now and then. Yeah, right? we we just know him as the guy. He won't give you his name. No, that's he's, a, he's this mysterious guy. He said, "Hey, man, I'm here. I was the one guy that sh- the curtains opened and we looked out and there was one paying customer and we <laughs> we went ahead and played the show, took a break, bought him a coke. No way. <laughs> he still comes around. Zach, any him. final questions here in our final moments? Any uh, anything else? What have we left out? Thing. Now that you're uh, an, an officially a resident of Nashville, is there anything in Nashville, is the music scene, is there anything that you want to start picking up or trying to adventure down? Yeah, you know, I've I've got so many friends that uh, either work in the studios or, or travel the country. Um, I've recently uh, made friends uh, quite close with a guy that's a blaze, uh, Guthrie Trap. He's that actually guy, a very good friend. He's a good to both friend of, of both ours. of ours. Wow. I when, spoke to him yesterday. <laughs> that guy needs to practice or something. He's <laughs> yeah. not. Um, it's you know it's funny because I was in Green Guitars with him a couple weeks ago and we were upstairs 
And he, he was playing guitars and then he was passing me guitars. I was like, don't pass me these guitars after he's, he just p- picks anything. I mean, he sounds so good. Yeah. I recently and, performed at the Grand Ole Opry. Right. Of course. That was a big event. And uh, the producer of the show said, is there anybody that you could think of that you'd like to see on the show? And I said, well, I'd really like to invite Guthrie Trapp. And uh, he said, I, I've heard about Guthrie Trapp, the, the wizard on just blazing. I said, yeah, that's that's Guthrie. He said, what are you going to do? I said, I'm going to play drums. <laughs> said, that's right. You were playing the snare drum on that. Yeah, man. And it was improvised because Guthrie was saying that you just kind of told him to go on stage to be like, play something. And yeah. you started playing a groove, right? Yep. yep. But do you look at a player like Guthrie and does that push you to I guess practice or are you do you get to see ever show you licks or anything you show him licks and you know when you're around a player like that do you feel like you're still improving as a player or is your thing now let me just be the best Billy Gibbons that I can be well he's very inspirational and uh, to be in his presence when he's performing is uh, a real eye-opener and uh, you leave first of all you're scratching your head going how do you do that then you wind up going straight to the Straight to the woodshed. Say, I'm going to try it. <laughs> so when you see a great guitar player, that still excites you to go home and practice and, and, and pick up a guitar and play. That still excites you to to get in there and work on it. Definitely. Yeah, it's still it's still an ignition point. There's something about it that hasn't faded. I mean, it's just, it's the groove. It's the grind. Okay, final question here. Favorite Mexican food in Nashville? Do you have a spot? Several. Really? Several. Yeah. There's one on 12th, Bar Taco. It, you know what? You know, let me tell you something, Billy. Okay, here we go. Oh, no. We're in now we're I, the real let me part. Tell you something, Billy. In a high debate about I said, I said to Zach, what if Billy said Bar Taco? He actually didn't say and it. I, but I thought there was no way you were going to say Bar Taco. Is that a spot that you, that you really like, actually? Was there yesterday afternoon. I'll probably be there again today. <laughs> you know, yeah. This, to me, seems to I love Bar Taco. But I feel like it's not, is it, would you consider it authentic? Yes. When they brought out elotes, which is shaved corn right off, right off the cob uh, with a little bit of Parmesan and they've got something to bind it that is right out of Mexico. It's, it's the real deal. I've never had that there. So that's what I have to get. Yeah, man. And I think the guacamole is great and the round chips are good. Well, we it's could do – the okay, our next hour is going to be fashion and food. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. The next segment. I'm yeah. down. Fantastic. Folks, you got to join us. Uh, we'll be at Bar Taco, and uh, that'll be our starting point. That, yes. And then give we us one more, the and, then, and then we'll let you go. But you said you had a couple. Just give us one or two more. Uh, Super Rica. That's my favorite in town. I uh, think it's amazing. It's cool. It's real cool, and yeah. it's good. It's really good. Kind of hard to find, but that makes it really intriguing. Really good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. We've got – we've got – Billy – can't thank you enough for taking the time to do this. This was such a thrill. We are such lifelong guitar players. Like I said, my first concert was Easy Top. He's been listening to Easy Top forever. I learned to pinstripe because of you. Oh wow! I, really? Yeah, he's good at it too. He's really good at it. Um, and Z and Z, Z, and Z. it's it's you know the this place. feels like yeah. the uh, this is it. Um, but yeah, thank you so much. I mean, so much time spent trying to learn your record. So this is this is very cool. Thanks for taking the time. Very cool. Done thank deal. You. Bueno, bueno. There you have it. Billy Gibbons on the podcast. And, you know, man, I wish we actually kept the microphones rolling because we, we ended up talking for like another hour afterwards. Just the coolest guy. Thanks again to Zach Del Vecchio for co-hosting this episode with me. 
The Zach Kuhn Show is mixed by Sam Heyman, and our theme music is by Justin Johnson. If you want more content from us, you can subscribe to our newsletter at NashvilleBriefing.com, or you can follow us on socials, everything at Nashville Briefing. The Zach Kuhn Show is part of the American Songwriter Podcast Network, and we're proud to be part of it. It's a great network with some really great shows. Check it out. And um, that's it. I think that's it. Um, Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time. Bye.